Welcome to the October episode of International Voices. My name is Udo Fluk. I oversee the Global Office in Arts Missoula, and I am the host and moderator of this podcast series. To listen to previous episodes, please visit artsmissoula.org, click on Global and Cultural Affairs, and visit radio and podcasts. International Voices has been on the air since spring of 2020 and is a monthly podcast brought to you through a collaboration of Arts Missoula Global and The Trail 1033. My guest in this episode is Julia Tai, the music director of the Missoula Symphony Orchestra and Chorale. Maestro Tai also is the music director of Philharmonia Northwest and the co-artistic director of the Seattle Modern Orchestra. Her career has led to acclaimed performances and rehearsals with the American Youth Symphony, Bakersfield Symphony Orchestra, Bohuslav Martino Philharmonic in the Czech Republic, the Boise Philharmonic, the Brandenburger Sinfoniker in Germany, the Estonian National Youth Symphony in Estonia, to name but a few. She has studied conducting with some of the finest conductors in the world. She interviewed in Missoula in September of 2019. Then we all dealt with COVID, and Julia was finally able to take the stage live before a Missoula audience in 2021 and has been the conductor of the Missoula Symphony Orchestra since. She is also the first female conductor in the history of the Missoula Symphony. Having grown up in Wiesbaden, Germany, I remember that I was surrounded by classical music at home, my parents taking me to classical music concerts with the Frankfurt Opera House nearby. Classical music relaxes me, inspires me, fuels me. I always had a love of the orchestra and a particular fascination with the role of the conductor. I feel honored to have the opportunity to interview Julia Tai, one of today's most dynamic conductors on the international stage. Julia, welcome to the October episode of International Voices. Julia, you received the New to Missoula Award back in early June of this year at the annual Arts Missoula Arts Awards reception. When did you move to Missoula and what attracted you to the Garden City? Um, so the first, my first visit to Missoula was in the fall of 2019. I was auditioning as the new music director candidate, mm -hmm. and I came in here for two weeks to conduct, not just conduct the orchestra, the rehearsals and the concerts, but I got to meet a lot of people in the community, went to Rotary Clubs and schools and really visited a lot of people. So in that two weeks, I felt like I, get, I got a good sense of what the city is about. And what I found is the the city is so people-oriented. They're very warm and welcoming, and right. people go out of their ways to help each other. Right. And they're very supportive of the arts and just so much going on, not just music, but visual arts, um, literature, and all kinds of opportunity for artists. It's a very active city, I would agree. And the fact that you had two weeks, I think a lot mm -hmm. of uh, job interviews might be just a day or two in right. which it is difficult to connect to a location, but so two yeah. weeks was a good way for you to actually get to know the city. Right, exactly. Actually, for um, the job of music director, it is uh, very extensive. You know, I always say to people, the job I do on the podium, it's only 20%. Right. The other 80% right. is going out in the community and connect with people and right. really, um, you know, talk to people and then tell them the importance of arts and music. Right. You know? Where did you live before you came to Missoula? Um, so I grew up in Taiwan. I was born in Taipei, Taiwan, and I um, lived there until I was 18. Okay. And then I moved to Los Angeles to do my undergraduate degree at the University of Southern California. And I um, stayed on to freelance for a little while after school. And when I was um, deciding that I wanted to conduct, um, I found a teacher up in um, Seattle, Washington. I studied with Peter Erich. He's a Hungarian conductor oh, nice. teaching at the University of Washington. And he was a wonderful teacher, a mentor 
for me, and I've lived in Seattle since then mm -hmm. until I moved to Missoula. You were just talking about Seattle as the former place of living before you came to Missoula. Mm -hmm. You were praised by the Seattle Times as poised yet passionate. How important is passion for you as a conductor? Well, it is so important, not just because you have to really believe in the music that you're doing to bring that the essence of what the composer wanted to say to the orchestra and the the audience, and it also acts as a very important um, motivation because mm -hmm. as anybody who's in the arts knows, it's a, a long and difficult road. You, it takes years for you to study to become good at what you do, and it takes years to to be able to do your job well. Right. Um, so it, it's um, that passion is important to to really sustain you through through different ups and downs right. and so it is important to to really love um, what you do I think um, I've often tell students like if you don't really love music if you're just having fun right. you could really choose something else that's much easier right <laughs> well and maybe that's what uh, what sets it apart from just a job I mean mm -hmm. a job anybody could do and mm -hmm. um, and and probably do okay, but mm -hmm. when you add passion to it, it becomes more than a job. Yeah, it becomes a a life's mission or right exactly. Yeah, much I often, higher than than just a job. Right, I often see myself more as a missionary missionary than um, a conductor in a way because right. I I truly believe in the power of music and I want to go out there and tell people about it and really you know change people's life. Right. Now, you just mentioned that you were um, born in Taipei, Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And how strong is your cultural connection to Taiwan and the Taiwanese culture and traditions and customs today? You said that you lived there until you were 18. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, so um, it, it's interesting that Taiwan as an island country has so many different influences right. and um, not just the, of course, the ancestry is Chinese, but then there's also Japanese occupation and there's Spanish and Portuguese. And also there are so many different um, imports, um, not um, in terms of culture and entertainment, you know, from all over Asia and also Europe and America, of right. course. And so growing up, I felt like um, I live in a very international city. You know, we'll have grocery chain store from friends, but then we'll have those Japanese clothing stores. So right. it, you really feel connected to the world, even though we're such a small country. Right. And, and of course, I started playing violin when I was four. And so classical music has always been a very important part of, of my upbringing in addition to my um, the Taiwanese culture. And so we have a lot of artists and orchestras coming through, you know, Berlin Philharmonic, New York Philharmonic, they all come and make a stop in Taiwan if they, right. they tour to Asia. So I feel like that's also an important part of my, um, just the background and my upbringing. And my grandfather was a pastor at the Presbyterian Church. So Growing up, going to church every Sunday, hearing the organ and the choir, and sure. you know, and my mom was a music director um, for the church choir at um, at church, and then also she's a high school music director. Um, so, she, uh, growing up, that is also a big influence of my my music intake and what made me who I am today. Sure. You know? Are there some um, Taiwanese? traditions or customs that you still, even though you have lived in the United States for many years and your life is here and mm -hmm. uh, you absorb the culture of the location, but are there, is there spillover from your home culture into your culture today? Sure. Um, well, I, the biggest one's probably food. <laughs> I still, you know, love Taiwanese food, be. right? As and then so I, I learned to cook the dishes that I miss so much, but I can't get necessarily get it here. Right. Um, so th that is an important part. Um, I think in terms of Taiwanese culture, so. Um, Growing up, we all had to learn a traditional instrument. Mm -hmm. So I went to music school since I was nine, and uh, my major was violin. 
<clears throat> but then we also had to play a Chinese instrument or erhu, and you know having that kind of sound in my head. It wasn't until later because because uh, um, when we're little, it's usually two separate channels. You're learning. Western right. music, and you're learning, um, you know, traditional music. Right. Um, but later, and especially these days, you see a lot of composer trying to combine those cultures, not just you know West meets East, but also Latin American composer using their own culture and folk songs right. in the symphonic idiom. So you're starting to see different culture come together. More fusion, um, right? More fusion. But when I was growing up, it's really separated. You know, we learned right. the Chinese music theory, and then we learned the Western counterpoint, right. and they they are separated in some way. Um, I think one of the thing um, I that's very different from Asian culture that I found because I've also I, I now officially lived in the United States longer than I've lived in Taiwan and you don't have to do the math right. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that it, it is um, a nice opportunity for me to look at both culture from a very objective perspective right. because when right. I first came I was an observer and I'd see how people you know react and, and interact with each other right. and and now I'm I'm farther away from my own culture right. that I could also see back at that culture and see how people interact with each other and and in some ways I kind of pick and choose of what I wanted to um, to do right. you know I think Asian culture in general is more um, introverted um, people are um, very sensitive to um, to words or when somebody says something you think about the meaning behind it right. or you, right. you it, it's more subtle everything right. is very very subtle um, I was telling people about Chinese even just the language itself you know sure. there's no past tense you 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 know you don't have to say five horses ran you just said 5000 years ago five horse run like there's no past tense right. and a lot of times the sentence itself doesn't have a subject or verb or you know, it's it's very poetic painting, right. and then you kind of get the meaning from the words put together. Sure. And so there's a lot of connection between things you have to make on your own, like think about what is behind what somebody said. And that's something I find it interesting to think about because people are less direct, but then you have to think further on what people right. say and not take it at face value. This is so interesting, Julia, and I'm I'm thinking about uh, my own past and how much of what you just said is exactly what I experienced. I came to the United States when I was 21, mm -hmm. and like you said, the first couple of years, one is in a stage of excitement, and everything is sort of like a honeymoon phase. Everything is, mm -hmm. you know, fine, Ex and and you don't find anything. Um, or you're not too critical of something. But then at some point, when you have settled in the culture, you're right, one can actually selectively adopt. One can look at the culture and mm -hmm. take pieces and say, this is something that I would like to bring back from my German culture, in my case. Mm -hmm. This is something that I'd like to celebrate. So I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that I was not the only one that <laughs> felt that way, but mm -hmm, um, that mm -hmm. you actually felt the same way. And when you just described your culture, I would say the same thing for, for German culture. It's very reserved. Mm -hmm. It's um, people are, there is much more intuition. Um, people are interpreting more. Um, there is a lot more that is not said mm -hmm. that, you know, it makes it sometimes difficult to communicate. Mm -hmm. Where here, people are, you know, what you see is what you get, kind mm -hmm. of a kind of a way of communication. And mm -hmm. so, um, but when you compared this, it just made me think yeah. that if I would have to go back and, and identify how that was for me, it was very similar. Mm -hmm. And then and then the selective adoption, I think, is a neat thing because you can take the food <laughs> and you can take individual components of one's home culture and then sort of reinsert them mm -hmm. and make them purposely your local culture and add to that, which mm -hmm. I think is a wonderful thing. Yeah, yeah, you really, you know, Balance. Choose balance and choose what makes right. you. you right. Know? And you almost define it new as you are the one in charge. You Nobody tells you you are the one that selects these things. 
So that's a just an interesting way of. So I would think then that there is um, some of that fusion mm-hmm. happening mm-hmm. knowingly or unknowingly because you have. 19 years of Taiwanese culture in you mm-hmm. that may come through at times right. and that may bring music um, styles together or music approaches together. Mm-hmm. Would you say that? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually really grateful to to have experienced so deeply those different cultures, right. you know, being growing up in Taiwan and now live in the United States for a long time, also traveling to Europe and right. meeting a lot of people. And I, I do find that that ability to to observe and to absorb um, culture helps me a lot in music making, you know, interpret things and to really get into composers' head of what they wanted to say, (laughs) because that's ultimately the most important question. Right. Who or what inspired you to become a conductor? And how old were you when you knew that that was Mm. your life's calling? Well, I came to conducting pretty late, actually. I was a violinist um, to begin with, and of course, seen a lot of conductors growing up playing youth orchestras. And then uh, in high school, I got this idea that I'm going to become an opera singer. And I was actually in um, opera productions all throughout college, and I sang lots of Mozart and um, Donizetti and those those repertoire. And um, it was during my undergrad year where I'm exploring. So I was in the opera program. I sang in the choir. I also play in the university orchestra and kind of try to um, put my foot in in everything. And um, I got to know a teacher, George Mester. He actually um, was the music director at Pasadena Symphony at the time, but also a longtime music director of Louisville Symphony and taught at Juilliard uh, for, for a long time. So he was a, a pretty well-known pedagogue of conductors. Mm-hmm. And so he came to my university to conduct an opera, and I got to work with him, and I got very interested in the conducting, the mechanism of it. Right. And then so I asked him if I could take lessons uh, with him. And at first, because he knew me as a singer, he was a little skeptical. <laughs> he was like, why do you want to learn conducting? And I explained my background, and also I, I'm very interested in this. So that was during my undergrad years that I did decided, oh, maybe I'll, I'll, you know, give it a try at conducting. Um, Growing up, I see my mom conduct all the time. So um, it is not uncommon for me, at least in my world, to see a female conductor. Um, But once I got into the world of orchestral conducting, I am starting to learn that you don't see a lot of women on the podium in front of orchestras. I think the statistics is still 10% 10% of all orchestras in the world are conducted by women. Is that it? Yeah. Wow. And so so I never thought about it, but I guess, you know, when I got into um, studying orchestral conducting more, it's hard to find um, women as a role model. Mm-hmm. And, and conducting, it's not that you necessarily learn other people's gesture because eventually you develop your own gesture and right. your own style. So it's very difficult to teach conducting because you don't want to conduct like your teacher. Right. But but I think because it's so physical, there's also a uh, innate difference between a guy moving their hand and a woman move their hands. You know, and so um, sure. we all come from a different. Um, physical attributes that we have to overcome or find things that would work for us. And so there's a lot of um, searching that I have to do on my own because I have never seen it done. Right. Um, so that kind of came later after I already ventured into studying to try to figure out for my own. Okay. Now, most conductors play a musical instrument themselves, and you mentioned a little while ago that you grew up playing the violin and Mm -hmm. then, I think, um, learning the piano in addition. Mm -hmm. Um, How important would you say is that to play an instrument? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines of when you, when you ask others to do something, it helps when you know how to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Is that does that yeah. play a big part in yes. that? Yes, it's actually a very important part of um, of conducting. Is that you have to really understand the 
the psychology of the, your players. Right. So you know, looking at a, a passage. On the on the page in the score, I would know. Oh, this is going to be a very difficult three bars for the violins. Right. So you know to practice it, but you also know what their mentality coming into those three bars. Right. Or you know understanding what's difficult for the bassoon and what's difficult for um, you know the tuba. That you have to really understand where they're coming from to be able to meet them. Um, at, in the music, and also coming from a, a vocal background, um, those years singing, even though I don't really sing anymore, but it really helped me to to understand what singers are thinking of when um, when they are on stage, because that's a totally different process again. It's not just music, but they have to understand words, they have to memorize um, all those the drama, the plot, and they have to worry about their wigs falling off or their costumes. So it's a lot to think about, right. and so. So understanding that part also helps me on the other side as a conductor to see how I can help them um, in this process. Sure. And I'm sure if you see that somebody has a difficult time or is struggling with something, you can make adjustments much easier because knowing how the instrument is played Mm -hmm. or how something is sung, you can sympathize probably much better with that individual than if you wouldn't have that background. Right, right, exactly. Julia, you graduated from the University of Southern California, a Thornton School of Music. You mentioned earlier um, with a bachelor and a master's of music degrees, um, where you were also awarded outstanding graduate. And in addition, you hold a doctorate of musical arts degree in orchestral conducting from the University of Washington. How important is a solid academic background in music to a conductor? Well, I think for us to stay in school for as long as we did <laughs> is to really gain experience mm-hmm. um, because as a conductor, um, it's it's a hard position to be in because you have to have experience to be able to lead people, but you never get to have experience if you never lead people. Right. And so it's kind of a situation you have to get yourself out of um, to get a job. Right. And so being in school, it's a great practice because you're you're every day you're with other music students and so you know when when I was studying conducting I also play in the orchestra for my teacher and you know we would go out to drink and then you'll hear about the trumpet player complain about something and you make a note <laughs> to yourself it's like okay not do that in the future so sure. just just you know being immersed with music and getting to know a lot of um, friends in the orchestra helps tremendously to, to become a conductor um, and, and just all the concerts that we get to do. Um, at University of Washington, we had two fully produced opera every year, so oh, we wow. got a lot of um, op- operatic conducting experience as well. Mm-hmm. And that really um, helped just to be in front of people every day. Sure. Yeah. When I did my initial research um, on the internet in preparation for this interview today, about conductors and conductor characteristics, I quickly learned silver is an excellent one. I also realized that while there are different meanings of the word conductor, the public knowledge about what a musical conductor does may also vary quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Could you please provide us with some background information about conducting? <laughs> That's um, a big question. I know. I realize, like, how but... much time do we have? <laughs> well, so actually, you know, conductor. The the word conductor is a good one, not just because I conduct and keep the beats for the orchestra, but I really think of myself as the the conductor between the music and the people. Right. You know, I, my my teacher always said that. You know, I I you. Oh, I want to see Schubert flow through. I wanted to see Beethoven. I don't want to see Julia. And of course, you see Julia, but right. then it is important to me what people feel is the music that is genuinely from the composer themselves. So I am, um, I'm really just a channel for music to flow through, and I hope the people receive that that at the end of what the composer. Um, had intended them to hear. So that is what I see my role um, very specifically is to create that that um, channel for th- 
music to flow through me. And of course, in the real life situation of rehearsals and concert, um, there's a lot of different job titles um, for a conductor. I see I'm often the product manager as well. And so I have to make sure every department, like the string section, the wind section, they they work efficiently. They all have the right bowing, the breath marks, so they know um, when to come in, you know, when they need to do what, um, and but at the same time, I think most importantly, the conductor needs to provide a overview and or vision for the piece, like right. what kind of interpretation and style that we're trying to achieve. Because the orchestra musicians are all very skilled um, musicians; they right. practice and learn for years to be able to play in the orchestra. Right. But they may all have different ideas um, right. when they approach a piece. So how you unite everybody's idea and then lay out a very clear vision of where we should go with this music is probably the most important part of a conductor's job. I love your interpretation of being the, really the a conducting piece, a connecting piece mm-hmm. through which this entire experience flows from the composer and the way they have written a piece to the audience that is receiving it mm-hmm. and, and the conductor being a conductor between <laughs> the two pieces. I hadn't really thought of that, but that's mm-hmm. that's a, a, a beautiful way of, of looking at it. Why yes. are conductors required at orchestra performances? You just said <laughs> that the musicians themselves are um, experts. They have trained for many years. They, they know how to play a song. Mm-hmm. Why is the conductor important in this? Well, as I also mentioned that it, I think the conductor's most important job is to unite everybody. Right. Um, because you could also imagine with putting a lot of highly skilled people in one room. Right. And a lot of times they don't agree. Right. <laughs> so right. I kind of have to make sure. Sure. We agreed on something. And right. then, you know, we we have a, a end product after the rehearsal that is, you know, as good as it could be. Right. And so th- that is a big part of to really just unite people and, and, and figure out a common goal of what we want to do with this music. I do ha- have friends who are in those conductorless orchestras, and usually they are smaller size chamber ah, okay. orchestra, you know, like 30 people, and they play um, less complicated music like, you know, Mozart or Mendelssohn, and that that they it's it's more transparent texturally that you'll be able to hear all the different parts at the same time. Right, and so that is possible that you could um, play certain piece of music without a conductor. Right, um, rehearsals can be tough because everybody has something to say, I can and imagine. you can't go through thirty people in the room and right. be like, okay, so half an hour later, what do we do next? Right. so in some ways. Th- you know, a little bit of um, that, you know, some in the old days, a conductor are more authoritarian. Right. And I don't like using that word um, because I don't feel that way. I feel a lot more collaborative than, than just telling what to do. I want that to be a two-way street. But sometimes at the end of a discussion, or actually discussion usually happens outside of rehearsal because you right. don't have a lot of time. Right. But somebody has to make a decision. Like, right. this is what we're going to do. Right. And we're going to start in bar 46. You right. know, like, we can't make it a democratic system. Then right. it's not as if in terms of achieving a goal. So uniting and guiding mm-hmm. would be one of those or would be two of those key functions in mm-hmm. uniting the musicians and then guiding them a certain way without being too forceful, but still giving them a certain guidance that is needed. Right, right. And also to to the audience, too. Right. I think um, another analogy I like to use for conductor is being the painter um, of putting different colors huh, together okay. on the canvas. And then so when whenever I'm gesturing t- to the tuba or to the flute, that the audience could see what it's in the foreground and what... It, what needs to be brought out and what's in the background. And I talk about this a lot of what we want to hear because um, there are many different ways to to play, you know, a phrase, but then because of your different roles in the orchestra, you would do it differently. And I also 
um, even though I don't see the audience uh, when I'm conducting, right. but I feel them. I feel whether they're with me or not. Sure. And so to guide the audience to hear what I want them to hear in the orchestra, because sometimes it could be very overwhelming. You know, there are a hundred people on stage, sure. both singers and orchestra members. Sure. What should I listen to? You know. Right. So I'm also giving them direction, like listen to the cello right now, or right. you know, listen to the flute, so they could follow that in that way right. um, and you know that's why people have to go out to live performances because you're not going to get that on the recording right how important are the hands of a conductor um, for the musicians in the orchestra so well, we spend a lot of time on the hands and the gesture and right. everything. And then you watch a video on YouTube of Bernstein trying to conduct with his eyebrows. He has amazing eyebrows. And he and his mouth. And his mouth. Right. He, he proved a point. He was trying to prove a point of actually every part of your body is right. conducting, not just right. your hands. And sometimes you, you could, I remember some of my conducting lessons that our teacher would would put a jacket on us, like you don't get to move your hand and try to conduct. And so you use your eye, you use your eyebrow, you maybe move your head a little bit. You're trying to give signal that they could mm -hmm. understand what they should do. And most importantly is your facial expression of what the music is about, like mm -hmm. what's the emotion behind every phrase. Mm -hmm. So having that facial expression that the musicians could understand is in some ways more important than moving the hands. So while the hands seem to be the obvious part to people, mm -hmm. there is a lot more that comes into play for right. the conductor to express movements, dynamic, all and, of that. Right, right. And my, my teacher always said to me um, that if you're thinking about your hands when you conduct, then you're doing it wrong. Like the end goal is then you don't have to think about your hands anymore right. is as right. natural as you're walking on the street right. and all you're thinking about is is the music and how you how you shape it and where you're going um, with the piece of music so in at the end you don't think about your hands anymore it really becomes second nature right. of what you want to do okay. uh, in your head now that leads me of course to the question what you're holding in your hand, or what many people hold in their hands, a baton, mm -hmm. how important is that? Well, it is really only there for practical reasons, and some orchestral conductor decide to conduct without a baton right. also. Um, a baton is just an extension of your arm, okay. and um, it is easier for people to see when they're far away. That's ah, why you see more okay. in the orchestral world than choir, because right. choir, they're never really far away. You don't need it. Right. And with with your fingers free, you could do more subtle things with vowels or, or um, consonants, that kind of thing. But with orchestras, when you have a large group of people on stage, it's helpful to have a baton, and baton's always in white, right. and we wear black. Right. Th those are all for good reasons. It stands because out. You could see a very, very clear um, beat right. um, from the baton precision. It's very easy to to see when, when you hold a baton. So an extension yeah. of the hand or the arm that makes it easier for musicians that are sitting further away to, to, to actually see. see. Okay. Right. Although an audience will most likely not notice, it is fairly common among professional conductors to be, in essence, a bit ahead of the beat. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, so for conductors, it it is most important to anticipate what they need and also to show them where they need to go next. Okay. So um, actually, every orchestra reacts to conductor very differently. So sure. it it. It's hard for conductor to move around from orchestra to orchestra. Some orchestra play really behind the beat, especially European orchestras. They, you give a downbeat and they play it like three seconds later. Right. But the a very experienced musician said that they need the time to react to what you are showing them. Okay. So you're showing them ahead of time. Um, because they need to know where to go. If, and what is coming their way. What is coming their way. I so see. That makes they sense. don't play on your beat because right. they have no time to react. Right. They play after your beat. So whatever you show, they could project that sound that you're look, you asked for. I can only imagine how difficult 
That must be to master that skill, to be in essence two seconds ahead and to anticipate what you want to convey to your musicians so that they can mm -hmm. play it two seconds later. Mm -hmm. That yeah, must be is mind-boggling to think about that you can time it that way. Right. It 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 takes a long time to master um, that kind of um, anticipation, but also you have to be in the moment. Um, right. You know, it's like you're living in two worlds at the same time. And right. conductors, you're constantly multitasking. Um, so you are conducting two seconds ahead, but at the same time, your ear has to be present to right. analyze what's going on and right. react to what you're getting from the musician or right. point out mistakes if there are any. So it, it, you're constantly kind of in two different worlds. Fascinating. Why does the conductor shake the hand of the first violinist? I always <laughs> wondered about that, and that seems to be across cultures a practice mm -hmm. that conductors do. Right, so um, the first violinist is also called a concertmaster, mm -hmm. which is the representative of the entire orchestra. Okay. So um, a, she's, she or he is not only the leader of the violin section, but actually the leader for the entire orchestra. Oh, okay. um, so by shaking hands with the concertmaster, I'm gesturing um, to the whole orchestra, not just to one person. Okay. You Because know, um, she's the representative of the entire orchestra. Right. And then so I'm essentially shaking hands with everyone in the orchestra, but I, I couldn't see. do that. Is there a certain general etiquette that conductors have when they interact with their orchestra? Um, as in a standard that you do, such as the example with the, with the uh, first violinist. Mm -hmm. And how much of it is up to the conductor to shape and to develop as their own style and as their own way of doing things? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it is also a very difficult to question to answer. Of course, there's this etiquette like shaking hands and, and showing respect. Um, it is across the board, but when you conduct different orchestras or different types of orchestra, whether it's a professional orchestra, a university orchestra, or a youth orchestra, you actually um, have different communication styles. I think most of the time, the professional orchestras would expect you to um, show sh show them how the music goes. They want to get to work, and then right. they know how to do it. But they right. just want you to show them what they need to do. Right. And so a lot of times, less talking is better. Sure. You, know, you, you show everything in your hands, and you try to connect through through gesture and music and not use a lot of talking because when you could be efficient in in connecting through music you don't need the words right. um, so they are expecting that but when you're conducting a younger orchestra um, you do need to um, become more of an educator to describe the music to give them a little historic background to really teach them how what is the goal that we're trying to achieve? I so see. Th th it really changes um, from from group to group. Okay. What does classical music mean to you personally? What happens when you listen to a piece of classical music? Mm -hmm. Well, classical music is a very wide genre. Right. A lot of times people don't think about it. It's specifically for the instruments like the violins and pianos that you know that was invented in the West. Right. Um, but to me, classical music is a very broad sense of music using those instruments. And um, so, it, for me, it's always a window to see different cultures, mm -hmm. classical music. Um, it's, it's interesting that your broadcast title is International Voices. And, and that is how I felt when I was growing up, you know, when I was uh, just studying violin. Um, I've never been to Germany before, but I play box music. You know, I've never uh, been to Austria, but I play Mozart's music. Right. Or I got to know English composers, Norwegians, Russians. And even though I've never traveled to those places, I feel like I have a connection with with their sound, with their, um, you know, their culture and their people. I feel very close connection. Sure. Um, so that is for me 
when I was growing up, a window into the world that I don't have access to unless I study music and play right. their music. Right. And now I've traveled a little bit more and got sure. to see different cultures, you know. Um, but still, I think music is a very distilled essence of certain culture that people try to put in their music. And and now I'm really happy to see, you know, there are composers from all parts of the world now. A lot right. of Latin American composers put wonderful things in into a symphonic piece right. or Asian composers. And, you know, th- classical music in a way is just an idiom for people to express themselves. Right. And, and through that, I get to know a lot of people and hear their stories. Sure. What are um, what are some of your favorite pieces of music to conduct, and why? Mm, that's really hard to pick. <laughs> I always said it, I can't pick favorite pieces because that's like picking your favorite child, and you know you love everyone. True. And so um, I think I think of course I you know any conductor. A lot and a lot of musicians are drawn to the big romantic stuff right. just because um, you it's it's a big force. Usually, the big romantic repertoire right. requires a lot of musicians. You right. know, um, eight French horns and <laughs> you know, like right. six trumpets and some off stage and you know, those are fun to do just because the forces are so big. So right. when you actually commanded, it's right. you know, it could kind of blow up the stadium. Um, so those are always fun to do, like kind of those big, big things. But I also enjoy doing very delicate, like French music, Debussy, you know, that kind of thing where you you, you have to be um, very subtle with, with your phrasing and, and to draw people in instead of blowing sound on their faces. So they're all fun. I can't. Decide and and you're right. It is uh, somewhat of an unfair question because it makes you choose, pick and choose, a specific um, piece, and that m- may be difficult. You're right. Um, what about the most challenging piece that you could think of that you've ever worked on that wasn't easy? That wasn't uh, a piece within the normal range of preparation, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Is there something that stands out where you say this was really something that I that I really had, had to, work to work hard at? Well, a lot of contemporary music. Um, okay. It's very very complicated. Um, I also conduct the Seattle Modern Orchestra, and our mission is to commission new works every year. Okay. Just you know to help composer have a place to to sure. say what they wanted to say. And in addition to brand new pieces, we also uh, perform pieces that were written in the last 100 years. And I think um, a lot of pieces tend to be um, a lot more complicated um, in terms of meter changes, tempo changes, and um, harmonically, you know, it's it's more dense, so you have to spend more time to analyze it and and, and to, to practice it. Right, so right. the only time I practice conducting a lot of times is those really difficult um, meter changes. Right. And actually, my first um, conducting lesson piece was a bar talk. Um, um, the concerto for orchestra, and for those who knows Bartok, he's a Hungarian composer, and and he um, wrote beautiful use of Hungarian folk music and wrote beautiful, beautiful tunes. And but he's also very specific. Like there's an accelerando from you know a quarter equals eighty six to ninety four, and you have to do that in six bars. And then so to do it the right rate right, to achieve right. that accelerando is very difficult. Or we're we're um, doing ritardando from you know a quarter equ- equals one twenty down to eighty six within ten bars. Right. And I really had to practice to make sure my rate of um, decreasing speed is will match sure. by the time the, the that bar comes I'm at the exact right time so right. so the the more modern composer they become very specific in mm-hmm. what they want like mm-hmm. this is the tempo I want and then so I have to make sure I really feel that tempo in my bones so right. I'm not just picking a tempo and so those are the things that is hard um, that hard to to conduct and right. I have to really practice a lot for. 
See, and here was I thinking that Wagner or uh, or or Mozart would be complicated, but probably that isn't so complicated compared to. Yeah, uh, in some ways, you know, Wagner, as dense as it is, and I love his lush lushness. There's right. a lot more freedom. Right. You could take a phrase a lot slower if you wanted to. <laughs> and it wouldn't, it wouldn't. And it wouldn't hurt the music. Right. Like it would still be his intention. Right. Um, but it is the more really delicate, very specific instructions sometimes sure. in the score that's sure. hard to do. Well, thank you for sharing that. I, I'm I'm fascinated by by all the things that I learn um, in the process today, and and uh, I grew up with classical music in in Germany, and mm -hmm. uh, and so I I thought that a lot of this um, I had actually uh, information on or an opinion on, but now uh, come to realize there is a lot more to learn and a lot <laughs> more to uh, to gain. You said earlier that. Um, being on the podium uh, with a baton is probably 20% of your entire job. Mm -hmm. But on the day of the performance, it's the 100%. Right, right. And you need to be at your best, and mm -hmm. you are probably even better than your best for that day. Mm -hmm. How do you prepare for a major concert mentally, but also physically, mm. to be at your best? Yeah. That's a great question. So I actually learned the older I am now, I have to have a more rigorous um, exercise routine <laughs> because in my 20s, I could do anything and nothing would hurt. But sure. now I'm older that I actually have to make sure I exercise on a daily basis, not just concert day um, because it's too late. Right. Um, so I have to make sure I'm physically fit for sure. And um, the yeah, the mental um, concentration is important because you, you really just live for those two the hours. Focus. Right. So um, I love taking naps. <laughs> just make sure, you know, I get a good nap in the afternoon and it's I great. show Somebody's up Somebody's endorsing naps. I love it. <laughs> right. And it's important to right. just feel fresh and then be, be yes. in, in the moment. But also I would think that the, 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 the focus is, of course, a big piece. But um, probably... A lot of people are not aware of the physical activity that um, that is there, and uh, mm -hmm. the fact that it is very demanding on one's body mm -hmm. um, to do that. And it may look nice and uh, sort of easygoing and and flowing with grace when somebody's up there on a podium, but it's actually hard work. It, yeah, and it's uh, it's like an exercise routine in essence. It is exercise routine, and it's funny. I just got this. Fitbit watch two years ago, and it always tells me my heart rate. And when I'm conducting, I my heart rate could be at 120 for you know half an hour. Right. And so I'm in my zone minutes, and then my you know watch is giving me a congratulation. I'm exercising, but I was just <laughs> on the podium conducting. But you're excited with sure. the music, sure. and my heart rate went really high. Yeah. Now we talked earlier about um, the role of the conductor. The conductor being uh, the person that unites, the conductor being the person that guides. Um, you have to be a strong leader, too, as a conductor. How would you describe your leadership style? Mm. So, as I said earlier also that I think the role of a conductor changed a lot. Um, in the old days, if you think of Carl Young or even Bernstein, those right. old school conductors, they're very much, you know, they're in charge and everything they said is like Bible. And right. nobody dared to challenge it. Right. And um and the role of a conductor have changed quite a bit. I think my generation, um, we really see conducting or orchestra mu orchestral music making as a collaborative effort. Um, because we are in this together. I I give you <clears throat> what you need, but then I also I'm looking for what they could give me back okay. in terms of their playing and and I want to be inspired by them. Right. I don't want it to be a one way street. So it is a very collaborative um, effort. Right. But at the same time, um, it, it is a hard. What what I found is also it is a hard line to be collaborative, but also um, exude confidence and. Um, being a leader because you you cannot lose the the role of being the leader because right. then without a leader the the music wouldn't come together right 
So I can imagine that that's a difficult and and uh, narrow line to to walk. Right, and most of the the、uh, most of it is in the atmosphere or in the in it's not unspoken. Right. So I hope I create an atmosphere in, in the orchestra rehearsal that I am open, but at the same time I have to be assertive enough to make sure everybody follows di- direction、sure. and get to where we want to go at the end. Sure. So it's sort of a little bit of both.、Oh, right. You, you have to be understanding and gentle and supportive and kind,、mm-hmm. but you also have to be when you need to be. The person that says, "Okay, let's get this done and let's move forward," and、right. we have a performance coming up,、right. and it requires a little bit more pressure, perhaps, or、mm-hmm. a little bit more,、um, a little bit more force, even、mm-hmm. to get it done. Right. right.、Um, speaking of conductors, and you were just mentioning the 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 historic greats from Karajan to、uh, to Bernstein.、Um, which conductor to you? Admire the most, and why? Do you have a favorite?、Um, of course, studying conducting, I've you know really、um, watched a lot of videos of the greats, and、right. um, one of my、um, favorite old-time conductors is Carlos Kleiber. I don't know if、mm-hmm. a lot of people know his name. He conducted、um, Vienna's New Year's concert for many years, and so he's one of my old-time favorite. I think he's not the most,、um, not the most exuberant. Like, in, of course, he's very energetic. He's、right. a little more reserved as a person than a conductor,、um, but I. What I love the most is that when he's on the podium, you see that joy、mm-hmm. of, of music in his face all the time, and that's what I、um, want to be: is that people see that joy、um, all the time.、Yeah. Interesting. Famous American conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein once said, "You have to do your homework and be very prepared, but when you stand on the podium, throw it all out of your head and feel." How important is feeling music compared to hearing music to you?、Mm-hmm. That that's actually a, a wonderful qu- quote because that's exactly what we do. Is that you do so much preparation and practice and analyzing the chords, the structure, the form, and then when you're up there, that you you know what your roadmap is, but then you don't. You stop analyzing. You know, I do a lot of analyzing in the rehearsals themselves to see if the chords are in tune, out of tune, who is late, who's early, what kind of phrase we want to do,、right. and that's all for rehearsal. But when concert comes, you stand there and really just be in the moment and be the music that you want to bring out、um, to people, and you don't you stop thinking. Sometimes it's like, oh, that just all happened, and you know it. Right, you are in a completely different world when you're performing. So the feeling part, as one might not be aware of, the feeling part is actually a very important part of this. It's not just the hearing it, but it's what what stage it gets you into, or、mm-hmm. what the whole environment feels like that you are surrounded by all of that. Right, and and the feeling part is what I. I think unites me and the musicians and the audience,、right. because you know, if I could feel what the music is doing to me, and、right. I hope that the, the audience would feel the same way, or、right. the orchestra would feel the same way.、Right. So, in some way, there's that it, feeling the music, but also in a very compassionate way, like feeling how people, other people, would feel the music. I, I'd like to think that when one is a conductor, a passionate conductor. That there is the physical piece that we said earlier—that just you know, cardiovascular, by speaking, <laughs>、um, a physician would probably say, "Go conductors," because you you know you get you get yourself a good workout.、Mm-hmm. But I also like to think that there is a a certain、um, amount of happiness that comes with it,、mm-hmm. a certain amount of fulfillment、mm-hmm. that. Um, and looking at the history of how long people have conducted, and some of the great conductors that conducted into their nineties, I know Herbert 
uh, Blomstedt is 96, yeah. and he just conducted the San Francisco Symphony in February of this year. Mm-hmm. That there is some kind of a of a of an energy of a drive of again passion to continue mm-hmm. and to not stop. And I remember an interview um, with Blomstedt that basically the interviewer asked him, why would you do that at 96? And he said, because I learn every time I conduct and it inspires me and I, you know, this isn't over. I'm not done yet. So I can't, I can't stop conducting. I'm just going to keep going. And I'm thinking, yeah. You know, you don't hear that a lot from accountants. I've never heard an accountant <laughs> say, "Yeah, I want to, I want to do accounting until I'm 95," uh, right? And yeah. and I hope I'm not offending anybody that is uh, uh, an accountant uh, mm-hmm. that has worked, um, you know, into the later years of their life. But I, my point is that there are mm-hmm. professions where um, you stop at a certain age, mm-hmm. and conductors seem to be going and going right. and going. Yeah, in some ways conducting a music is a way of life. Right. You you don't become a conductor, you're always a conductor. And so And that's what I meant with, yeah. Right. Because and then when you connect with different musicians or even right. if you conduct Brahms Fourth Symphony for the hundredth time, right. you're still discovering new things. You're still learning something about life itself. Right. And I think we all never want to stop learning about life. Right. Right. Yeah, that was that I, you you said it so much more refined, but that I think is is exactly right. It's something that you never stop. You just that's you and you just continue. Mm-hmm. Um Julia, one of your passions I learned is music education for young people. Please tell us more about why this is important to you and should be for young people. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt fortunate that I was able to study classical music and be immersed in it from a young age and thanks to my parents to you know really um, right. help me and create that environment that I could learn and so I often want to create that environment for for all the kids as well because I find it a very valuable um, lesson like we talked about not just music lesson and learn right. about beats and and how to read but just about getting to know different cultures and and discovering life and expression and sure. stories sure. and so I find that very important part of just being you know being right. a, a person being a good citizen right. being, you know it, in the community, so I want to create more opportunity for kids of all ages to to be able to experience that that joy. Right. And so we um, at the Missoula Symphony, we started um, starting from the youngest age. We have those um, um, free mini concerts at the Missoula Public Library downtown, mm-hmm. and those are. M- for preschoolers to elementary schools, they got to learn about instruments and right. they got to learn about um, different composers. And then we also um, go into schools. We send coaches to um, help with music programs in the schools. And so those are older kids who already learn an instrument and they could be better at it right. um, through the, our coaching program. And then um, when they're in their high school years, if they play in the Missoula Youth Symphony, um, I invite the Youth Symphony to come and play with the Missoula Symphony so they sure. get to experience um, playing with a professional musician on stage right. and playing to a symphony audience that they they never experienced that, that before. So I, I hope to recreate those wonderful opportunities I had um, growing up to the kids who live in this community. Because so many kids do not have those opportunities. And so many kids are not exposed at an early age. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that makes it even more so important that to look out for that and Mm -hmm. to fill that gap. Right. And music, you know, in some ways is all so important to bring people together. You know, we hear sayings that music international language, you know, you don't need words to really explain, but you you can feel the same thing together. And, right. and having that experience, um, not just playing the orchestra um, together, but also the experience of other people listening to you. And, right. and it's a very shared experience, and you really don't get something like that. Um, in anything else. Right, um, I would agree. We all sit in the same room and listen to the same 
same thing and feeling the same thing, and right. we we walked out of the hall feeling closer to each other. Right, that's beautiful. Conducting today is probably not what conducting was a couple of decades ago. And listening to you, watching you, the energy that is there, the the passion that is there. The new generation of energetic and innovative conductors of the contemporary music world, like yourself, engage with the audience and their community, some almost at an equal level, I would say. Mm-hmm. How important is this new approach and what role do you believe conductors play in shaping the future of classical music? Mm-hmm. Well, I really believe classical music is about people. You know, it's about the composers as people telling right. their stories. It's right. about the people um, on stage playing the music, and it's about people in the community listening to the music. And so that's why I said 80% of my job is going out to connect with people. Right. Um, because, you know, I, I want to tell them stories, but I also want to tell their stories. Right. And so I always work hand-in-hand hand with composers, with performers, sure. with community members. And I do think um, that is the future of classical music. And you know, People often talked about whether it's still relevant. You know, we, people talk about, you know, do we still need an orchestra in in the in the community and and it is important because it is about people and it's a way to bring people together and and tell the story that would live through times right you know we play music that's from 300 years ago well, sure. and we hope to create something today that will live on for the next hundreds of years right right this has been a lot of fun. I can't believe that our time together in this podcast is coming to an end, and I'm coming to my last question. Um, the competition for audiences is at an all-time high, I feel anyway, with mm-hmm. lots of things that are going on. Orchestras across the country are working to diversify their audience mix, perhaps, um, are trying to get those individuals who listen to classical music online to actually go to concerts, attend live performances, Mm -hmm. and when they do, to get them back so that it's not a one-time thing, right? Mm -hmm, But that mm -hmm. they actually form a habit of sorts. Mm -hmm. What can symphony associations and their conductors do to assist in this important mission of Bringing, bringing people, people in. in. Yeah, I think about that a lot in terms of what kind of experiences that people are getting when right. they come to a concert. Right. Um, there are obvious things, like I said before, listening to a recording at home is very different than watching people work hard to make the music happen right, right in front of your eyes. And also... Um, it is important that you are in the hall with everyone else that shares the experience of I'm doing something with a thousand other people as opposed to I'm doing something at home right. by myself. And right. that's a totally um, different experience. And so I, I often, as a performer, I think about the experience of the audience a lot. We try to create an environment that they felt like they are coming to see friends, um, uh, see friends in the concert hall with a thousand other people. Right. And we're all in this together. We have that shared experience. And I do hope that it becomes a habit because when you are in the music, I've often heard people um telling me that, oh, you know, I've never cried so hard um, when I'm by myself, but when I, you know, come to the concert hall and hear something right. that I, I start to feel something that I haven't felt for a long time. And and that is, it, I think those kind of shared experiences make us a, um, better human beings that we we learn agree. how to feel and agree. just like we read the news every morning you know right. we have to give ourselves space to to feel right um, once in a while and and if if that we could create that space for people to do that I think that's an important message be. to give ourselves the time to feel because in daily life with everything going on uh, one is racing through mm-hmm. and probably doesn't take the time to feel a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then at the end of the day, you go to bed and that's it. And the next day is just <laughs> the same way. 
Right. Um, but to actually consciously remind oneself or others mm -hmm. as a conductor and to say, you're all here because mm -hmm. I want you to feel something and I want you to experience it with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially because so many things are are based on isolation today. I mean, mm -hmm. people do things ever since COVID. We, a lot of people still work from home, isolated mm -hmm. in, an, in a basement makeshift office kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so many things are, are actually not with others, but are an isolated activity mm -hmm. that I think bringing people out from that isolation, from their basements or their garages mm -hmm. to a central location, such as mm -hmm. the Denison Theater, right. and to say, be here with us and right. experience it. And it will be different from when you do the same thing with headphones on. I think it's just a, an incredible message of, well, bringing it all together, the passion again that we started with. It's not just hearing the music, it's mm -hmm. feeling it and being part of something else. Right, right. Julia, thank you so much. Um, what a joy it was to talk to you, to get to know you a little bit better, and um, all the best wishes to you and especially your family. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. My pleasure. Many thanks to my guest, maestro, Julia Tai, the music director of Missoula Symphony Orchestra and Chorale. Tai also is the music director of Philharmonia Northwest and the co-artistic director of the Seattle Modern Orchestra. For her time, for her insight, and for sharing her passion for music and conducting with me. I'm already looking forward to the next great Missoula Symphony concerts. The Symphonic Variations on Friday, November 3rd, 2023 at 7.30. On Sunday, November 5th, 2023 at 3pm. And the popular annual Holiday Pops concert with performances on Friday, December 1st and Saturday, December 2nd at 7.30pm and on Sunday, December 3rd at 3 p.m. For more information about upcoming concerts and how to buy tickets, please go to missoulasymphony.org or call the Missoula Symphony office at 406-721-3194. To the listeners near and far, please join me again next month for a new episode of International Voices. As always, thank you for listening. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know, being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Dankeschön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Arts Missoula Global and The Trail, 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found under events at artsmissoula.org and The Trail, 1033.com. <laughs>